It's the All Things Strange Podcast. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, the paranormal, and anything strange. Check out our links in the description on the link tree where you can find awesome stuff like our Discord where you can interact directly with the hosts, our Patreon where you can support the show, our merchandise store, and more. This week's episode, The Kolaris Incident. As voted upon by our Patreon subscribers, we've got three wonderful tiers for you. The first tier will get you early access and after hours. The second tier will get you bonus episodes. And the final tier will allow you to vote on upcoming topics such as this one. All right, here we go. This is an excellent case. We're talking about the Kolaris incident, also called sometimes Operation Plate. It's known by a couple of different names, but in general, the Kolaris incident or uh, Operation Plato, or however you say it in, in Portuguese, because that's what they speak in Brazil. These events happened starting in 1977 in the region of Rio Garupi. It's on the border of Maranjo and Para in Brazil. It's basically a no- north coast area, and there's actually a very large region that was experiencing a high number of UFO sightings. It's really hard to categorize everything in one way. So we'll just talk about generally people saw lights in the sky moving erratically, moving quickly, moving slowly, all sorts of things. They would see lights descend. They would see UFO craft of all sizes and shapes. They would see orbs. They would see cigar shapes. They would see disc shapes, saucer shapes, trapezoid shapes, you name it, they saw it here. This is one of the wildest waves of UFOs that I've read about so far. What? But this one is kind of crazy too, because it wasn't just seeing UFOs, but the UFOs actually attacked people in a way. People died anyways. The UFOs would send out beams of light that would hit people and paralyze them, sometimes for weeks. Uh, People were in a panic. They didn't know what was happening, and the government didn't seem to want to do anything about it. After a while, a lot of the witnesses, after the while, they were known as the the Chupa Chupa, or um, that just means sucker. If you remember from the Chupacabra episode, Chupa just means Sucker. But it's actually hilarious. If you're looking at translations, which a lot of the stuff I looked at was translated because there's a lot of the source material is not in, actually in English, but they they translate Chupa as lollipop because there's a lollipop brand named Chupa. You've probably seen it. I, I think they probably distribute worldwide. Anyways, they're definitely here where I live. So so they they interpret that as as lollipop. 
the lollipop UFO wave in Brazil. It's kind of hilarious when they do that. But anyways, people started describing it as the vampire lights because people would get struck with the lights. They would get a burn where they were struck by the light. And they would also get what looked like a mosquito bite or two mosquito bites or like needle holes or puncture wounds, tiny puncture wounds. And they would have symptoms consistent with, I guess you could say radiation poisoning, but they would have weakness. They would have burns. They would have headaches. They would have, they would be anemic. Things like this, this is what, this is what would affect people who were struck by the lights. And some people would just go to sleep and they would wake up with a burn with the puncture marks on them inside of their house, which is kind of weird. So because of this, because of the puncture wounds and people also reported that they felt as if something was being taken from them when the lights hit them, some of the people were conscious, many of them were conscious because of that, it earned the name vampire lights. Uh, and at some point we'll get a little ahead of ourselves there, but yeah, at some point people were, they were upset, they were panicking and certain areas were pretty much vacated by most people. There were people that stayed behind, but a lot of people left these areas and went somewhere else because this went on for a long time. The sightings began, it seems that they began in the Baia do Sol region of Para in Vigia, Colaris, San Antonio, Dutua, and a couple of other local areas. Now, one interesting description is that some people, they didn't call it beams of light. They called it lightning. They said they were being struck by lightning from the UFOs. That suggests that it's sort of instantaneous, not that it lasts a long time, but that's not what every description said. In fact, the description suggests that the beam of light or lightning or whatever it is lasted a long time because it would paralyze them and then they would be stuck there and then it would go away after a while. But the lightning, quote unquote, lightning that struck these people um, was, was just, it was a part of the event. And people described it also as having intense heat. Sometimes people that were struck by the light or the lightning or whatever it was experienced immediate unconsciousness upon being struck. Most people did not, but some people, as soon as they were hit, they just went unconscious right away. When the press started covering the incidents, it seemed to cause a full-blown panic in the area uh, that's what that's what the interwebs say, but I think the panic started happening before the press started covering it, to be honest, if you look at what was happening, because these, these UFO sightings were so constant all day, all night. It was very, very common, and people stopped walking around at night by themselves, or after dark anyways, because those were people, those people were, were often targeted by this. This is, this is such a crazy case that it's kind of hard to believe, but we'll get to, we'll get to some proof later on. This case has pretty good, pretty good documentation to it. Most of the victims were women who were usually struck, struck by the lightning over their left breast, which would leave a small spherical or oval burn with the two small holes in the skin. 
Here's an excerpt from a newspaper article that covered the event. It's from the um, O Estado do Moranjo paper from July 20th, 1977. And this is a translation. The appearance in the skies of Pinheiro of unidentified flying objects is causing suspense and panic among the population there and stimulating imaginations to the point that some are saying that the devices or unidentified beings have arrived to stun people with a jet of light in order to remove their blood. The presence of the objects has been confirmed in the skies over the lowlands, and one Sao Luis videographer, videographer, videographer has even verified their existence with documentary footage. The UFOs, which have been seen by thousands of people in the region, appear most consistently in the area between Pinheiro and San Bento and have a strange shape similar to a Y with a flame at the bottom. The mood in the region is one of widespread fear, and people do not dare go out at night in the face of rumors that the UFOs are emitting bright jets of light and great heat that burn people's skin. The local authorities were taking it very seriously, and they sent a letter to the Air Force, not just asking, but demanding for help. The Brazilian Air Force. And the Brazilian Air Force responded. That's a huge part of the story. But before we get to that, there's an interesting, little, just a little witness statement here. Well, not a statement, but just a little sighting. One witness was a police officer named Jose Hibamar Mendez, who saw one fly over his house at a low altitude, emitting a bright light. And the reason I mentioned that is because uh, you have everybody, you know, men, women, children, police officers, mayors, doctors, whatever, all of them are, everybody is seeing this stuff. So it's not just an isolated event or maybe just 10 people that saw it or something. It's everybody in the region is witnessing this stuff. Everybody. It's, this is probably the most impressive mass sighting I've read about to date. At one point during the events, officials banned travelers from visiting areas of the sightings. Some people say that this was to keep journalists out of the area. The military wanted to keep a lid on things. And we'll talk about that later. They definitely were covering this up, but it was so widespread that it was kind of pointless. You can't, <laughs> you can't really shut down an area that large at the drop of a hat. You know, you could shut it down, but it would take a long time to deploy enough so soldiers or whatever to shut down the border to this area. So, of course, it didn't work, and journalists got in there. Okay, the first case for this wave is probably the Ilha dos Ca um, Carangueos case. Sorry for my pronunciations. If you are familiar with our podcast, you know that we are not good at pronouncing things. Brothers F uh, Fermino and Jose Carrera and the brother-in-law Arleano um, Alves and their friend Yao Mendez Souza, uh, they all lived in Alcantara, and they were spending the day of April 25th collecting mangrove timber. And I can only imagine what ETA would have to say about that if he wasn't here, if he was sick. Sorry, guys, by the way, the reason I'm running solo on this one is because ETA is sick and Agent Ether is taking the day off. She just kind of was tired and not feeling great, so she didn't want to join us either. So we are just solo, or I am just solo here, but the show must go on. 
and I definitely wanted to have an episode for this week. So what the heck? I'll just do it, do it solo. Why not, right? Anyway, so they were collecting mangrove timber, and they planned to take it to the interior to sell aboard a ship called the Maria Rosa. They collected stuff, they put it on the ship, and it was getting dark, and the tide was against them. So they decided to anchor for the night and wait for the morning to continue inland to sell their stuff. The area, I guess, had tons of mosquitoes, so they blocked the entrance to the cabin area with a cloth. Three of them went inside while Jose stayed above. I don't know if he drew the short the short straw. Maybe he was the redheaded one of the group. I don't know why he had to sleep outside with the mosquitoes, but I hate mosquitoes as much as the next guy, so I kind of feel sorry for poor Jose there. But the joke's on everybody else. Before dawn, uh, Jose woke to the sounds of moaning from inside of the boat cabin. He went in with his flashlight, so it was still dark out, and he saw that everybody in there was injured, except poor J-O-A-O. Uh, how? J-O, wait, you know what? <clears throat> I got, uh, I got the internet. I'm going to go ahead and look up that pronunciation here. All right. And we're back. I just looked up how to pronounce a name because I was butchering the crap out of it. So anyways, Jose went in and he saw that his two brothers were injured and Joao, that's how you pronounce that J-O-A-O, Joao was actually dead. And I'm probably mispronouncing that a little bit, but it's a lot closer than it was. They were all covered, well, the two living people were covered in mysterious burns, but there had been no fires in the cabin. Jose set off immediately to Sao Luis. Sao Luis? How do you say that? I don't know. Portuguese is weird because it looks like Spanish, but it's pronounced very differently from Spanish. So I'm just going to do my best here. Anyways, they set off, uh, Jose set off to Sao Luis and arrived sometime in the afternoon. He took the, the survivors to a first aid station, and then he went to the police to report what had happened. Police and a soldier went to the boat to investigate. The police commissioner who was there noted that the brothers had burns, mostly on their arms, but all over their body. And here's a quote. I've never seen a burn like that before. There was also a strange wound in the mouth. On the injured men, we noticed very similar burns. They gave the impression of being caused by a red-hot iron. It was really strange. I saw no sign of an iron or fire on the vessel, though. The wounded men, Ariolano Alves, could still speak, but I could not understand what he was babbling. He seemed to be afraid of something. His look was very strange. But the strangest thing is, is the one person, Joao, that was deceased didn't seem to have any <clears throat> any sort of burns or other injuries on him. He seemed perfectly fine. So why was he deceased? The autopsy concluded that Joao had died of a stroke caused by arterial hypertension due to profound emotional shock. In other words, he was he had been scared to death. I don't know if that's a real thing or not, but that's what they concluded in this case. And I, I don't like that one bit. <laughs> <laughs> that you can actually be scared to death. I've seen it in movies, but I never thought it was possible. Firmino, uh, Firmino was in a coma by the time he was taken to the hospital and had second-degree burns all over his body. 
And I looked up, I forgot what the classification was for burns. So first degree burns are light burns, sort of like a sunburn, or if you touch something hot and move your hand away real quick and it hurts, but it's not that big of a deal. Second degree burns burn down deeper into the skin, but they don't get all the way through the skin. And third degree burns destroy the, go all the way through the skin to the underlying fatty tissues and also kill the nerves as well. And actually, third degree might, depending, might not hurt as bad as a second degree burn, depending on the situations. And that's actually true. I actually, I burned myself once. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but hey, sh what the hell? We're all friends here. Don't tell anybody. It's a secret, all right? This is just between you and me. One time I was making kettle corn on the stove in a big giant pot. I don't know how big. Not too crazy big, but it was big enough. It was just one of these big boiling pots. I was making kettle corn. And for whatever reason, I guess because I'm a dumbass, when I went to pour the popcorn into like a bowl to serve it, I, uh, when I poured it, I, it, I did it at such an angle to where the, it was a steel pot touched my left forearm and I didn't notice it right away. So I didn't take it off right away, especially because it was a big, heavy pot. So you can't move that fast. And I didn't want to drop it because it would have just, you know, so I had to figure out a way to set it down or whatever. And it was, it was long enough to give me a third degree burn on my forearm because I know it was third degree because, um, it was, uh, the area was numb. It actually didn't hurt as bad as you might think. Surprisingly, the whole area was numb and over time, that entire piece of skin just sort of lifted off and fell away. And the new skin grew underneath of it. It was really weird, pretty icky, but, uh, I was all right. You know, I survived it. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, how big was it? Can I still see the scar? This was years ago. I think the scar is not really there anymore. It's pretty faint. It was probably like three inches, a three inch by one inch patch, something like that. But this was many, many years ago. And it, the scar is, is pretty much not there anymore somehow. I don't know why that is. Maybe the skin here is pretty thin. So maybe that's why. I don't know. But the scar was, I had like this brown scar on my forearm for like a really long time on my left forearm. But anyways, that's, that's a little bit of a, little bit of a tangent there. So yeah, second degree burns are, those are the ones that hurt. <laughs> those are, uh, as far as pain goes, maybe the worst ones. Anyways, Firmino became semi-conscious at the hospital and had developed muscular hypotonia. I don't know what that is, so I had to look it up. And it says, hypotonia is a term that describes decreased muscle tone. Typically, muscles have a very small amount of contraction that gives them a springy feel even when relaxed. This also provides some resistance to passive movement. It is not the same as muscle weakness, although the two conditions can happen at the same time. Muscle tone is controlled by signals that travel from the brain to the nerves and tell the muscles to contract. Hypotonia can result from damage to the brain, spinal cord, nerves, or muscles. Hypotonia does not affect intellect. The opposite of hypotonia is hypertonia. The damage can be the result of the following. However, it may not be possible to find the cause. Trauma environmental factors, genetic muscle or central nervous system disorders. And I found that very interesting because I'd never heard of this before. It's not muscle weakness. It's your muscles sort of losing their elasticity or something. It's really weird. 
He also had bilateral meiosis, which I guess is just contracted pupils or constricted pupils. You know, when, when your pupils are like really small. Aureliano was also taken to the hospital and his burns weren't as bad and he was conscious. He said that he woke up with severe pain in his right shoulder and the left side of his back. And when he woke up, he was no longer in the hammock. He didn't know why. He didn't know how he got there. He didn't know what caused the burns or his friend's death. He was just no longer in the hammock. Another thing is that's weird is the victim's clothing did not show any signs of burns, just like the ship. How does one have their skin burned without the clothing also being burned? Don't know, but one leading theory is some sort of radiation. And it also is a mystery why the one man that appeared to be unharmed was actually deceased. Maybe he died of fright, like the autopsy said. I don't know. It's just a very strange part of the case. Somebody proposed that the ship was somehow struck by lightning, but it doesn't make any sense because there was no sign of lightning damage or any sort of damage to the boat. No sign, no scorch marks, no flame marks, nothing. It was just, it was a normal boat. So if it had been hit by lightning, first of all, it doesn't, I don't, I can't imagine somebody in a cabin being hit by lightning and this happening to them, but you never know, lightning can do strange things. So I suppose it is possible, but the evidence just does not support the idea of lightning. I think they were trying to come up with a plausible explanation to what had happened to them, but they just couldn't do it. They had no idea. Dr. Silvio um, hypnotized the men later in 1978, but they had no memory whatsoever of whatever had caused the injuries. Like their minds were just blank for that period of time. For whatever reason, they were not able to access those memories. This is what many people believe to be the first case of the 1977 wave, or was it an invasion? Some people say that there are not enough similarities. I don't know. I'll let you decide, but it sounds pretty similar to me. The main event started in about August. The epicenter appeared to be uh, Vigia di Nazara, but like I said, it happened all over the place. The mayor, as I previous, well, I, I didn't say who, but previously I said they sent a letter, but the mayor, Jose Ildon Favach Suriero, sent a letter to the Air Force asking for help. Brigadier Protasio Lopez de Oliveira, the commander of the Bethlehem base, created a classified unit to investigate the events in response to the letter. It was a secret operation called Operacao Prato. That's O-P-E-R-A-C-A-O-P-R-A-T-O. In case you want to Google this, there's a ton, ton of stuff. I was surprised at how much stuff is available online for this, actually. Usually when I look at stuff that happens somewhere else that doesn't speak English, I have a lot of trouble finding information. Not in this case. Anyways, it was called Operacao Prato or Operation Plate or Operation Saucer. And the really cool thing is, is he sent military over while the sightings were still going on. At first, the military had no idea what was happening, but from their perspective, well, I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that from their perspective, 
they thought that the possibility was basically some sort of foreign invasion or foreign incursion at the very least. And I don't think I mentioned, but the areas where this happened were pretty remote. They were villages. Most of these areas were not like modern cities. They were, um, you know, what we might call in the United States, we might call like country bumpkins. And I have a quote later on where one of the military people says something that's not very nice. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute or a few, or a few, I don't know, a few minutes. By the time the military got out there, there were all sorts of witness reports. People had woken up with strange burns. They'd seen lights so bright that they went through the roofs to attack people uh, and take something from them, blood, spirit, who knows what. The burns had needle marks. People were being chased if they were outside at night. Uh, people fled the village in fear. It was pandemonium. The first military group arrived on Kolaras Island in September 1977. Most people had already left the area by this time, and only a skeleton government was left. The mayor, a priest, and Dr. Walaid uh, Sesam Carvalho, who was the director of the sanitary health unit, who was treating victims at the time. Now, personally, I don't like the name sanitary health unit for a medical thing. I don't know if it was a center or a tent or whatever the hell it was. It's kind of like if you have a car dealership and you name it Honest Guys Car Dealership, like, we're honest. Trust us, bro. We're honest. You don't have to worry about it. If it's called sanitary health unit, that kind of makes you worry that it's probably not sanitary because they're trying to convince you that it is. <laughs> Anyways, the military set up anti-aircraft guns and restricted civilian access to their temporary base. They interviewed all of the witnesses that they could find in the area, like extensive interviews of witnesses. The local doctor saw many patients with the burns and the puncture marks, but could not explain it to people. Uh, to the, he could not explain what was causing these things. And again, most of the victims were women, apparently. I, I think like something like 60 or 70% of the victims were women. By the time the military got there, the people were left, gathered every night to pray for protection, but they also lit bonfires to try to keep the UFOs away. And they gathered, they gathered cans, empty cans, and used those as noisemakers at night, hoping to drive away the UFOs as well. The mayor went to Bethlehem every week to buy fireworks and distributed those to the villagers, which they also used to try to scare away the UFOs. And, you know, you got to think these people, I'm guessing they don't have too many televisions. They might not read too much science fiction in these areas. So they don't know what they're dealing with here. All they know is there's something invading their space and they're, you know, they're trying to keep it out any way they have, any way they can. And these people probably also were fairly poor. So they don't have a lot of resources available to them. So they're doing, they're doing what they can. It probably seems silly to us today that they might take empty cans and rattle them around to try to scare off a UFO. But remember, these people were desperate. They were in a panic and they didn't know what to do. So they were trying anything they could think of, you know. People also sealed any hole in their house, any and every gap hole or whatever they could find, including keyholes, because they were afraid that the light beams or lightning could get in through those tiny holes. But then again, other people 
reported seeing parts of their ceiling, you know, like a ceiling tile or part of their wall, or even in one case that I saw an entire wall that just dematerialized out of nowhere. And then the light came in. So it didn't matter if there's a hole or not. I guess they would just create their own. Because of all the ruckus going on every night, people, of course, had trouble sleeping at night. And also, there are reports saying that people were drinking more than normal, because probably, I'm guessing, they were pretty stressed out. A few of the villagers even managed to get guns to try to shoot at the UFOs, but not very many people had the resources for that sort of thing. The military told locals that the UFOs were extraterrestrial. Get this. This, I love this part. They told the people that, oh, these are just aliens from another planet. You don't have to worry about them because the villagers thought that they might be demons. And the military determined that demons would be far more terrifying to the people than an extraterrestrial entity. <laughs> so, you know, this flip, it, flip the script on this one, right? Usually the military will say it's anything but E.T. But in this case, they said, yeah, guys, it's just E.T., they're just visiting from another planet. You don't have to worry about it. It's fine. They're just going to, you know, come here, look around. Maybe they're on vacation. They'll go home. Don't sweat it. Dr. Wallade, W-E-L-L-A-I-D-E. I don't know how you pronounce that. Oh, wait, you know what? I have the internet. Let's find out. All right. I'm not seeing it with the quick search and uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. So we'll just, we'll just call her Dr. Wallade. W-L-L-A-I-D-E, once again. Uh, if you know how to pronounce that, hey, let me know on Discord, right? Anyways, so she told the she was told by the military to deny the physical evidence of the burns and punctures and other injuries to the victims and say that it was all just mass hysteria and self-flagellation. Who? <laughs> Man, ETA would have a field day with that one, right? <laughs> Insert obligatory ETA masturbation joke, I'm sure. The doctor refused to go along with this, which was a pretty bold move. From what I understand, the government in Brazil back then was more of a dictatorship and they were not as easygoing, <laughs> let's say. I don't know how true that is. I don't know a whole lot about Brazilian history, but that's just what I read. So it was very brave of the doctor to basically say, nah, I'm just going to go ahead and do my thing. You guys do your thing. Leave me alone. Here's what the doctor said about the injuries. It was as if something hot had been stuck in the skin of those people. Sound familiar to that first case? I don't know. Sounds familiar to me. The burns were large. And one of the most surprising things was that they went into necrosis almost immediately. If the attack happened at night, in the morning, they were already blackened. Most burns take 90 hours to achieve this effect. That's kind of weird. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe if you are a doctor or otherwise knowledgeable about stuff like, you know, burns, you might know. I don't know. Also, the burns were not similar to those from fire or boiling water, and they did not form blisters. So these were very strange burns, and the doctor had never seen anything like them and had never seen anything in the medical literature either to describe what they were seeing. The closest thing she knew of was radiation burns, but even that was not an exact match. 
Here's another quote from the doctor. At first, there was an intense redness in the place that had been struck by lightning. Then the hair began to fall out, and days later, the skin began to fade. At this stage, the two small holes could be seen more easily and were similar to those that would be caused by two needles. And despite treating many, many villagers, the doctor was skeptical of the UFOs. She did not believe in UFOs until she saw one herself in broad daylight. So I guess she had seen like lights in the sky at nighttime, but she just sort of dismissed them as being like, whatever. She just didn't want to believe that the, you know, these things were true anomalous objects, but she had a sighting, a daylight sighting, and her maid was also with her. So she saw a cylindrical object that was also spiraled. It flew overhead silently at a low altitude. And when they saw it, the maid was so frightened that she fainted as it flew overhead. One interesting thing that the doctor noted was that everybody was getting got by the UFOs except children. None of the victims were children. So I guess these, you know, whatever they were, the least they had some kind of conscience. you know, they were going easy on the kids. I can appreciate that. There was one incident where a UFO landed on a soccer field. Residents gathered there, they making a lot of noise and shooing, shooting fireworks at it to try to scare it off. And after a while, it flew off. So that, I mean, <laughs> this, this one is so crazy because there are so many cases that we could probably do like this, if we looked at every single individual sighting, we could probably do dozens of episodes on just this case. It's so wild. While they were there, the military took photos and videos of the UFOs in addition to interviewing people. So the military, like I said, they were there right in the middle of the, of the wave and they saw it too. The military people saw these things as well. The photos and reports and everything were classified but in 1997, some stuff, some photos and classified information were reported or published in the Revista UFO magazine. That was 1997. And the editor, A.J. Gavard, almost got arrested. I guess they went and hassled him, but for whatever reason, they let him off the hook. I mean, 1997, that's many years later. So it's interesting that they were still upset that far removed from the event. Usually things that happened that long ago are considered to be not really that secret anymore and people don't seem to care about them that much, at least not in the government. I did find many photos of this event online and they are really interesting. They match what the witnesses are describing, which are objects that are extremely bright, as bright as a welder's torch. That's what many of the people said in the photographs. They don't have a lot of detail, but they look like photographs of something that's an extremely bright light. And there's a bunch there. You can find a ton of these photographs online. And I won't say that it's necessary. The photographs in and of themselves are not proof positive. They could be hoaxed. Of course they could be, but they do match witness description. So I do find them very compelling. And there are a handful of the photographs that are more compelling than others, but you'd have to go find those. This is an audio only pod podcast, unfortunately, at this point. So I can't show those to you here. Here's a quote from a military report. 
The city of Colares, where we linger, presents a new atmosphere. Its residents learn to live with the problem. Maybe our lectures, contacts, slides contributed. Not as the most important factor, but we believe remarkable. The lights continue to appear, and what is amazing, obey a schedule. The popular ones are not so frightened anymore. I don't know what that line means. The popular ones are not so frightened anymore. I have no idea what, he, what they mean by that. Which popular ones? The UFOs? The people? The military? I don't know. But there is still doubt. The monster created by the press through its description of bloodsuckers has marked in many minds a dread and a distorted and adverse version of reality. Now, I don't know who, you know, what chicken or the egg, right? But I don't think that the newspaper came up with that, with the vampire sucker lights. I think they got that from the villagers. We have seen several times these objects moving in varying altitudes and directions, performing complex maneuvers, and indicating that these bodies and lights are intelligently directed. Our certainty is based on our personal observations and the reliable report of people in whom, by their actions and behavior, we analyze that we can trust. Our cinematograph... Cinematographic? No, cinematographic... Uh, I guess that's close enough. Our cinematographic records do not, <laughs> that can't be, there's no way that's how you say it, but whatever. Our cinematographic records do not depict our certainty since lacking technical and personal resources only at the end of the period did we have access to film with high sensitivity. They leave much to be desired. In the other times we list the opportunity or photographed them with inappropriate equipment. We believe that with better resources, we can provide reasonably satisfactory documentation. And that's really interesting. And that would, that would explain why most of the photos look not that good. There is one color photo that I was able to find that looks really, really good. It looks really good, but most of them are not as good. Most of them are like black and white, or uh, they don't show much because the light's too bright or something like that. But there are a handful of highly interesting photos, and what they said there is we didn't have the correct equipment to photograph this stuff, and that's why all our photos suck. So that checks out. You can find a lot of these military documents online, by the way, and you can even find translations of them, or you could use Google Translate like I did, and you can find these also, these military documents also have photos they have maps with UFO paths where they happen more often. They have drawings of the UFOs, drawings of the trajectories of the UFOs on the map, and lots and lots of other stuff. These are really good documents. If you ever wanted to dig in somewhere to a document, I would suggest here. It's so you could do worse for sure. All right, another witness uh, event, I guess. One witness saw a UFO and then went inside to get his gun and went back outside and pointed it at the object. The UFO shot a beam of light that paralyzed the man, and he was paralyzed for about 15 days before he regained total control of his body. There's a lot of stories like this, by the way, and this, like I said, if I went through each individual story, it would take a long time. The commander who was in charge of Operation Prato didn't believe in UFOs. He was very skeptical of the whole thing, and he thought that it was probably all a bunch of malarkey. Even though he had seen lights in the sky, just like the doctor, he dismissed them until dot, dot, dot. He had a sighting that convinced him they were real. Just like the doctor. 
And the commander also, by the way, he did not arrive at the beginning of the operation. He arrived later on once his troops were already established there. I guess that makes sense. You know, you don't want to be one of the grunts setting up the tents. You want to get there once the tents are already set up. So I guess for a while, he didn't see everything that his men were seeing. He just saw lights in the sky for a little bit. But the sighting that convinced him, uh, he saw a light that was as bright as an arc welder, as many people did, and it came out of the north. It seemed to focus on his group moving erratically around, and then it turned and disappeared. And because of the motions of this light, you could not dismiss it as being a helicopter or a lightning bolt or anything like that. It definitely appeared to be an intelligently controlled craft. This convinced him that, all right, maybe there's something weird going on here. He had another sighting around 6.30 p.m. at night when he saw three objects in a formation fly overhead at a high speed and altitude much faster than should be possible for terrestrial vehicles. 30 minutes later, he saw two more objects that were pulsating that rose up to the north and then went to the south. Then one of the group noticed there was a group of people, somebody pointed up, they noticed above them a dark disc-shaped object that was 30 meters in diameter, about 150 meters above the group. This is real creepy, guys. They're standing there or they're doing whatever military people do when they're doing military people stuff, hanging out, and then somebody looks up and goes, guys, guys, look up, look up, guys. So they look up and they see this huge disc. For whatever reason, this one wasn't glowing as bright as an arc light like the other ones had been. It was dark, so they could only see like the silhouette of it. Um, it had yellow or amber lights in its center, but they weren't very bright. And they noticed a noise that sounded like a combination between an air conditioner and bicycle gears. I'm trying to imagine that bicycle gears and an air conditioner. I don't know. That's weird. I'm imagining something weird, but who knows? <laughs> maybe it just maybe there's just some kids riding bicycles around, right? I don't know. The object pulsed brighter every two or three seconds. And when it pulsed, it was so bright that it appeared to be daytime while the light was pulsing. The yellow light suddenly turned blue and then it shot off at a high rate of speed far greater than any terrestrial craft, any man-made craft, and apparently disobeying the laws of physics as we know them. <laughs> Reminds me of a, um, what was that? That movie, Three Rooms. And there was that, it was like the, was it Four Rooms? I think it might have been Four Rooms. And there's that one, has four, four skits that happened in a hotel. And uh, they had uh, four directors doing each skit. And then there was that one that was called The Misbehaviors. <laughs> I don't know why I just remembered. It just reminded me that. I haven't seen that movie for years. I think it had, uh, had like two parents. Um, one of it was Antonio Banderas was the father. I remember that. And then the kids were supposed to stay in their hotel room um, while the parents went out on a date or whatever they were doing. You know, the parents dressing up all fancy and stuff, looking like a million bucks. And when the parents, well, I, I don't want to give it away in case you haven't seen it. It's, I, I think that's called Four Rooms. Sorry for the tangent, the diversion, but uh, I, I don't know. I like to mix it up a little bit with these tangents. ETA's not here, so uh, I can't let him do the, all the tangents. <laughs> but 
Uh, let's see. Yeah, four rooms. Yeah, four rooms. And it's, uh, let's look at Wikipedia here. Four Rooms is a 1995 American anthology farce, black comedy film written and co-directed by Alison Anders, Alexan- Alexander Rockwell, Robert Rodriguez, and Quentin Tarantino. It's pretty good, guys. It's I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I don't want to give away anything that happens in the movie, but... Uh, yeah, Room 309, The Misbehaviors, is the third skit. So the the husband, Antonio Banderas, and the wife, Tamlin Tomita. Have I, do I know who that is? Tamlin Tomita. Um, she, do, she doesn't look super familiar. She's an American actress of Japanese descent. She made her debut as, whatever. Oh, as uh, Kumiko in The Karate Kid Part 2. Oh, no shit. Okay, that's who that is. All right. Well, now I recognize her, but it's been a long time since I saw the Karate Kid part two. Well, that's fun. Anyways, we'll uh, get back to the episode here. But yeah, Four Rooms, I highly recommend it. It's a really fun movie. I don't know why that popped into my head. Right, where was I? Uh, so, so the UFO report that the military put out that was classified for a long time, um, it describes several different types of UFOs. Cylindrical, shaped like an oil drum, cigars. Um, oh, the oil drum had nine different variations, apparently, of sight. You know, people saw it all over the place. Cigar-shaped stuff, trapezoid, disc, whatever. Any kind of UFO you can imagine, people saw it. It's really quite bizarre. Most, if not every single UFO wave I've read about before, have one or two UFO types you know, like maybe a mothership shooting off orbs or something. I've never seen a sighting like this that has, you know, the kitchen sink sort of an approach to it where every imaginable UFO is actually seen at one point or another. The military found a witness with one witness with a strange story. So a witness was apparently hunting in the dark when he saw a bright object pass above him. It flew off, but came back and hovered over the witness. It was an elliptical-shaped UFO, which, you know, could be one way to describe a flying saucer, depending on how you're seeing it. I don't know. A hole opened up on the ship, and a humanoid being descended in a beam of light. The witness, as this was happening, probably crapped his pants and then hid in some foliage. The creature had a red light in its hand and seemed to use it to examine the ground where the witness was. And the witness had apparently just dropped some of his stuff on the ground and the, the creature was examining the stuff with a red light. And then the creature turned the light to where the witness was hiding. Upon When the, when the creature did this, now the, the creature is like in some, some foliage or some bushes or something, some plants, I don't know the thick brush. So he should, the, the alien shouldn't have been able to see him, but he knew he was there because he pointed his red tool, whatever it was, <laughs> uh, where's ETA when you need him, right? <laughs> right at the witness. So he ran off to his boat. And while he did this, the creature got back in his UFO, presumably by riding the beam of light back up. And the UFO followed after the, the man who was running away. When he got to the boat, he shouted at the people in the boat, uh, to, you know, hey guys, I imagine he must have said, holy shit, there's a UFO. It's following me. And when the men in the boat saw it, they all jumped into the river to get away. Of course, there's no crew in the boat to make it move. So the witness had no choice but to try and hide in the plants again. 
The UFO came to a stop over the boat, and once again the creature descended in a beam of light, and it examined every inch of the boat with its red light. Eventually, it went back up, and the UFO flew off at a very high rate of speed, as they tend to do. Later on, the military went to examine the boat and the area of the incident. While they were there in the early evening, they saw a large, brightly lit object approaching at a very high speed just over the trees. At this time, it was raining, so their visibility was pretty limited. Later on, at 11 p.m., they saw another UFO moving from north to south, crossing the river. This one was spherical and glowed yellow and flew at a low altitude as well. This time, they were able to get some pretty good photos and videos of the UFO. Later on, a third object came towards them, and this time, its lights, if it started, you know, having like the very bright lights like an arc welder, but the lights turned off. And they were able to see the size and shape of it unobscured by the extremely bright lights, which make it hard to see what it is that they're looking at. They said it was huge, a hundred meters in diameter. It was shaped like an American football and appeared to be translucent. It had windows or portholes of some kind that revealed light coming from inside the craft. It slowly went overhead the soldiers and once again, they were able to get photos and video film of the object. They heard the same sound as in a previous incident, the air conditioning and the bicycle gears. Pretty damn creepy. It flew overhead, followed the river towards Bethlehem and left. But then it, it came back, or perhaps a different craft came back, and hovered over the shore on the far side of the river. Watching all of this, the military witnesses felt for sure that it was intelligently controlled. They're not talking ball lightning here. They're talking intelligently controlled craft. And since, you know, we didn't have anything then that can do these things and we don't have anything now that can do these things, that leaves, you know, a couple of interesting options. <laughs> <laughs> it was not the SR-71, I'll tell you that much. After a few minutes, it rose up slowly and with a red light on the bottom and blue light on the top. Then there was a sudden flash and it flew off at an incredible speed. Now, these are just a handful of stories from the military reports. Like I said, there's a bunch. We could go on and on and on. There's a ton. Uh, maybe I'll look some up for the bonus episode this week. I also wanted to talk about an interview for the bonus episode this week. So we'll see. We'll depend. It depends. We'll see what I get up to. But the, the military actually left the area before the UFO flap was over. They had been there for four months and had taken hundreds of photos and 16 hours of film. Nobody knows why they left. There is no official explanation. Some people speculate that there was pressure from higher up and possibly pressure from other countries, such as the United States, to, for them to leave. That's what some people speculate. I don't know that that makes sense to me, but there is speculation. Other than that, we have no idea why they're left. But there was an encounter where the commanding officer had just before they left the area. So this might have something to do with it. So the commanding officer was lying in bed when he saw an explosion of light and heard a loud click. 
I guess he was in his room. Lay, he wasn't asleep. He was just laying in bed, just chilling, I guess, thinking about things, reflecting on life, the universe and everything, whatever. And there was another witness, a military man with him. And they both saw two beings about five feet tall. One was at the foot of the bed and the other was at, you know, at the head of the bed and grabbed him from behind. These creatures, whatever they were, wore suits and they described it as looking similar to what astronauts wear. Their skin was dark gray, but they couldn't see facial features because they wore something that looked like a diving mask. That's it. I mean, that's uh, no, no gray aliens here, right? Maybe these are just people who need a, a day on the beach and to get a tan, you know? The beings spoke in a mechanical voice and told the men that they would not be harmed. Then there was another flash and a click, and they were gone. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, the military noped right out of there. And also reading this, this particular encounter, but many of these encounters, they don't mention missing time, but you have to wonder if there was some kind of missing time going on there. Anyways, the next day, one of the men, Holanda, had an itch on his arm. And he noticed that there were two objects under his skin, kind of like a plastic needle or plastic needles. And that's, I mean, that was pretty much that encounter. After Operation Plateau ended, or Operation Plate, there was a definite military cover-up of the events. But the events were so widespread and so well reported on that it was impossible to cover up. But one, I, I just want to point this out because I mentioned this earlier, you know, how, what they thought of people in this region. One magazine published an interview where, uh, the assistant commander was quoted as saying, everything was nothing more than a mere illusion of the population's perspective, which is of low intellectual quality. Residents are, co are confusing the artificial satellites in the area and the meteorites that blink in the sky with aliens. So this is, you know, not unusual for UFO sightings, but yeah, they're saying, Hey man, you got some country bumpkins up there. These people are fucking morons. They're uneducated. They're just satellites. These people are freaking out over satellites. But if you look at the, the, uh, physical evidence, which by the way, there are pictures of people with these burns on their, like on their left above their left breast, for example, plenty of pictures of these victims. So there's plenty of physical evidence, not just in the reports, but photographic evidence. I'm sorry. Satellites don't burn people and neither do meteorites and they don't take their blood either. Eventually some of the military documents were leaked. And then later on, I, I think I mentioned that earlier that somebody leaked some military documents that were published in a UFO magazine and later on, the military did willingly release some of their documents as well. You can find many of these online, for example, on the Brazilian National Archives, among other places. Now, Operation Prato ended in December of 77, but it turns out, according to the documents, they still had smaller missions or investigations through 1978 to investigate what was going on because it kept happening. It didn't stop when the military people left. Uh, it, it appears it's hard to say for sure, but it appears that not all of the military documents have been released and 
The video footage has not been released. I was not able to find it anywhere. But there are some frames, some still frames available from the footage. But I want to see that footage to see how stuff moves around. So that kind of makes this case interesting because there could be further developments to this case. More information, more documents could be released. The video files could find, or video tapes, I suppose. I can't imagine. I think they were on Super 8s and 16 millimeters. So it's not going to be digital unless somebody makes it digital. <laughs> I hope that the film has survived all of these years and that someday we get to see it. Because that would be badass. 16 hours of this stuff. That'd be great. One of the commanding officers of Operation Prato gave an interview not too long before he passed away. So I actually, I plan, I found the interview and I found a translation of it, or maybe I translated the webpage <laughs> either way. So I want to go over that maybe for this week's bonus episode, and then I'll see how long that takes. And if I have more time, maybe I will also talk about some more sightings from the documents that I didn't talk about yet, because there is a ton, an epic ton of the sightings, uh, epic ton of sightings available. All right. So that's pretty much all I have for the Kolaris incident. Just final thoughts, I suppose. Um, after looking at this, I think of, of everything I've looked at, and I, I'm almost at 200 episodes. This might be above 200 episodes. I'd have to double check. In the ballpark of 200 episodes, this case by far has the best documentation that I've ever seen in a UFO case. We have photos. We have videos that aren't released, but they exist, or at least they existed at one time. We have many, many witnesses, military witnesses, whoever saying that the video existed. So I believe that it exists. The photographs look like what the witnesses were described. We have photographs of the witnesses and their burn marks and their injuries. We have hundreds, thousands of people that saw this, thousands of independent witnesses in all of these areas. We have military reports where the military people also had the similar experiences to what the villagers were having happen to them. We have so much evidence for this one that I, I don't know, this is probably the best case I've looked at yet for sure. I was actually, usually when I look at stuff I'm like, all right, is this one, what is there? It's probably going to be a big old nothing burger, you know, and often, um, I'm pleasantly surprised with at least something interesting, but for this one, I was just blown away at just how much good evidence there is to support that something happened. And the military believed that these crafts were intelligently controlled and some of them believe that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is what we're talking about here. E.T. was visiting Kolaris, Brazil, and the surrounding areas. That's what it looks like. That's what the evidence points towards. Who knows? Maybe it was just ball lightning or sprites or whatever. Venus, I don't know. But this is an extremely compelling case. One of my favorites so far. And, you know, it's it's... Uh, it's really hard to crack my top five because I've looked at so many cases. I've looked at way more cases than I've talked about on the show just because I, you know, it's sort of what I do. I sort of look at these things from time to time. And this is one of the best ones I've seen, if not the best case I've seen so far. It's a really good case. All right. Well, thank you everybody so much for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by leaving a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Can I get a keep it strange? Keep it strange. That was supposed to be Agent Ether. <laughs> All right. Catch you guys next time.